Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark. Uh, I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dominic Patton, who is senior editor at Deadline. He writes about legal matters, TV critic, does all sorts. He's been there forever. Uh, it's a great site. Everybody should uh, go to Deadline if you want your Hollywood news. Uh, I reached out to Dominic because there's a story I want to talk about that I don't know nearly enough about. And that's, that is the, the basis of the show, is finding out things. And that has to do with the lawsuit that Village Roadshow filed against Warner Brothers over the release strategy of The Matrix Resurrections. I find this fascinating. I'm surprised it took this long for such a lawsuit to be filed. But what's the deal here, Dominic? What is going on with Village Roadshow? Why are they suing Warner Brothers? And and where does the the case go from here? Well, first thing, thank you for the great intro, son. (laughs) Very very nice to be here. Um, uh, Long-time listener, first-time guest. Um, Secondly, Village Roadshow... Village Roadshow took a long time to sue Warner Brothers because they took a long time to figure out how they were going to sue Warner Brothers. You know, this is another one of those lawsuits, and I think we're going to see a fair amount of them over the next several years in Hollywood as some sort of, you know, Teutonic plates are moving in terms of the industry. I will refer to this, copyright included, as the Scarlett Johansson doctrine, which is, I made a movie with you using Scarlett Johansson and, and last year's Black Widow with Disney. My movie did not come out the way I thought it was going to come out in theaters and big movie and and hundreds of thousands of people and all this money rolling in from tickets and popcorn all over the world. It came out in some theaters and it came out on your streaming service. And people watched it on your streaming service because, well, global pandemic being what it is, and some people have children and they don't go to movie theaters. So Scarlett Johansson, after a period of time, took Disney to court and said, you guys told me this was going to be exclusive. You guys screwed me out of a bunch of money that I would have made, back-end money, all sorts of things. For instance, we all know the story about how I think second Avengers movie or something, Robert Downey Jr. ended up with $50 million because of all the Mm back-end deals he has. Streaming kneecaps that. Streaming is kind of like, it's a one and done. Here's your cash, off you go. Other examples that had occurred, now stop for a second, Scarlett very publicly threw this out. Disney very, I would say, with tremendous lack of grace, responded and basically tried to, to, to wealth shame her, for lack of a better expression, mm-hmm. which I think had misogyny and a whole bunch of things built into it. And they said, look, we paid you $20 million. We we're going to give you some other money. And you've made a crap load of money, Scarlett. So what are you whining about, rich white lady? Mm-hmm. That didn't go too well for Disney. My favorite part of that story was when they essentially accused her of wanting people to die in theaters. Like, you know, you you are very callously uh, trying to get people back in the theater. I was like, you own a theater company business. You you anyway. Sorry. Yeah. Well, no. And exactly. But, you know, and I'm long story short, getting to the Matrix and Village Roadshow and Warner Brothers uh, issue at hand today. But I'm not going to say they went nuclear, but definitely the missiles were in the silos. Um, And of course, it ended in a settlement. And it ended in a settlement because Scarlett had a weaker case than it looked like, and Disney had a terrible PR mess on their hands with one of their biggest stars. Um, And Disney had misplayed a number of elements of the pandemic to begin with across the board, and they had a regime change, and it was just, was the right hand talking to the left hand? Did they even know they were connected to the same Mouseketeer? Ended up being, we love you, Scarlett. Here's some money. And quietly, they're paying her out what will probably be around the $40 million she expected kind of at the back end profits if this if Black Widow had been a massive hit at cinemas. But remember, as you said, cinemas were not open. Like So regardless if you want to death shame Scarlett or if you want to also say, look, we made a deal, turned out in the contract there was never an exclusive deal 
to release it only theatrically. So either way, dynamics, much clash. This is going to happen throughout a lot. When Warner Media decided in late 2020, they assessed the situation in that first year of the pandemic and went, clearly, we are not going to make a lot of dough of people in movie theaters because there's going to be almost no people in movie theaters. And they moved the bulk of their, I believe it was slightly less than half, than two dozen films that were slated for 2021. And they said, we're going to put these on HBO Max as well as theatrical. We're going to take a hybrid strategy, which a number of other uh, studios had done. Clearly, not a lot of people, unless your name is Spider-Man, made a lot of money at the box office last year. But they did appear on a lot of streaming services, which some would say led to subscribers whipping over and signing up to see that movie, that, movie, that sequel, that whatever they wanted to see, et cetera, et cetera. And that was kind of, that's the new, the new normal here in Hollywood. But Village Roadshow, who had a over 20-year relationship with Warner Brothers, financier and, and other, other aspects, they turned around a week and a bit ago and said, no, 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 no. You destroyed our potential for this franchise, which obviously had come back after almost 20 years. And you ruined any chance that we were going to recoup any money from the box office of this because you put it on HBO Max when it came out, as well as it releasing it in theaters. And they're like, that's done. We want the money and we do not owe you the uh, about $100 million that Warner Brothers is claiming that you owe for co-financing the movie. So long story short, they whipped Warner Brothers into court. Warner Brothers, clearly not happy with this. Uh, and and Warner Brothers tried to counter by pushing it into arbitration, right? Mm, that's a little bit of the narrative slightly off there, timeline slightly off. When they first started having these discussions, because all Hollywood lawsuits, like almost all lawsuits of a corporate nature, there's lawyers back and forth beforehand. So look, Sonny, I'm going to sue you because your podcast did this to my podcast. And we have a conversation. And, I'll, you know, I'd say seven seven times out of 10, these things never go to law. There's two lawyers or two agents talk. They figure out a deal and we both are happy. And we're having coffee and working on something new together next week, right? They did have that discussion. Warner Brothers then said, well, hold on. If you're really having this discussion with us, your contract clause clearly designates this has to go to arbitration, which is standard. So- mm-hmm. They said arbitration. And Village Roadshow looked around and went, well, hold on a second. The Scarlett Johansson doctrine. We're going to play that card. We're going to pull this out into the public sphere and see how we can do it. Now, you could call it a shakedown. You could call it also honest and open, transparent grievances. But the fact of the matter is Village Roadshow, who've had a number of corporate changes themselves over the past year and a bit, decided to throw this down on Warner Brothers, decided to throw this down on a company that, of course, is owned by Warner Media, which, of course, is going through a merger to become Discovery, which, of course, is going to see a lot of people who are currently at Warner Brothers or Warner Media no longer have their jobs anymore for obvious reasons. And timing in Hollywood is everything, Sonny. This lawsuit was filed on February 7th. On February 9th, the Department of Justice Antitrust Division said, we got no problem with this merger. You guys are good, which means it's going to happen. So Mm -hmm. that's good. So already Village Roadshow lost a little bit of leverage there because I'm sure they were hoping, look, we want to get this resolved in our favor quickly. We'll do it in public. They'll try to just pay us off because they don't want anything to be uh, a pothole to the the merger. Unfortunately, the DOJ said, well, there's no potholes on this road. This is a Biden infrastructure all the way. And so now they're taking it to court. They wanted the courts to give them what's known as an expediated motion. And, And essentially, they went into court 
and they submitted paperwork and said, we want you to give us a preliminary injunction, expedite discovery, and stay on litigation in court. And we want to move this thing forward really quickly. They filed that paperwork on Monday, February 14th. The hearing was on February 15th in the morning. And the judge in Los Angeles Superior Court said, nada, not going to happen. So all of a sudden, this went from being on a litigation autobahn to just like country roads. Nothing now is probably going to happen until March 11th. Obviously, Warner Brothers are saying, no, like we didn't break our deal. We never promised you an exclusivity on this. Interestingly enough, just for those of you who follow this, Daniel Petrocelli, who is the same lawyer who represented Disney in the Scarlett Johansson case, is representing Warner Brothers in this case. Petrocelli has represented Warner Brothers in many, many, many cases, including the Superman rights case uh, with the uh, creator's family, well, states rather, and Warner Brothers several years ago. So we'll see this goes. It might all be resolved in arbitration or in the, the you know de facto version of arbitration before March 11th, or it's just going to drag out. And then it's going to drag into when Warner, Warner Media and Discovery become one. David Zaslav starts running the thing. Jason Kilgar will probably be gone after a golden parachute payout, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is not over, but it definitely, it definitely has dimmed. Yeah. Well, I mean, what is what is the actual end game here for Village Roadshow? I mean, obviously, there's the getting out of paying their hundred million dollar share of the the production budget. Right. They want out of that. Who knows if that that'll happen? They want some cut of the HBO Max revenue. Who knows if that'll happen? But then there's also a question of rights here. Right. I mean, the the Warner Brothers and Village Roadshow co-own, I believe, the Matrix IP, for lack of a better word. Um, And without both of them signing off, they can't make any more of these films. Right. Well, or TV I mean, shows look, or et cetera. You know, I mean, there, there, there are some, there are some sources that, that sources have told me that there were some discussions of like, well, give us a big, you know, and I'm going to use the word because this is what a source said to me, multi-billion dollar payoff and we'll just go away. And Warner Brothers were like, we're not doing that because we don't really have to do that. You know, as I said earlier, Village Roadshow, especially when Bruce Berman ran it, former Warner Brothers executive, I might add, uh, he resigned, he left the company September, 2021. You know, they had a, a, a de- multi-decade-long relationship. They still have a relationship. They're still working together on the um, the latest Mad Max, the spinoff, uh, sequel. I guess spinoff, really. And there's this one, then there's the uh, Wonka movie and a whole bunch of others. Mm-hmm. So there's entwined relationships and IP. The thing about Hollywood, and you know this, Sonny, probably more than most, is there's a reason they call it show business and not show friends. And it's because... You can have these disputes about these specifics. You can have these public showdowns and you can go off and work on other stuff for as long as you like. I'll give you a perfect example, in my opinion, which is Frank Darabont had this, I believe at one point it was up to $360 million lawsuit against AMC over The Walking Dead, which he was the initial showrunner and executive producer and developer of taking the Robert Kirkman co-created comics Mm -hmm. to the screen and becoming a huge success. I mean, AMC is basically now the TWD network. Um, and there's spinoffs already, there's spinoffs planned, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He sued them because he said, when you fired me just before season two, uh, back in, I believe it was mm, 2011, 2012, you owed me all this stuff, including for spinoffs and all this stuff. And the show became a big hit and I want money. Fought, 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 fought. I think he filed in 2013 last year. Suddenly AMC and he, and, and Darabont after years of like almost going to court and then the pandemic delayed the trial and this and that settled. Frank got over $200 million and a couple of rights for a few other things around here. At the same time, as he opened up his dispute and said, you messed me over with my contract, said this to the home of Madman and Breaking Bad, other people, including 
Gail Ann Hurd, who's an executive producer on Walking Dead, and Robert Kirkman himself and several other past and present executive producers turned around and went, whoa, hold on. There's some self-dealing here. We're not getting the money we should have gotten by, by market standards. And they sued. And that those lawsuits are continuing. And they're still doing business with AMC. And they're doing more sequels and more spinoffs and stuff like that. So this, these kind of things go on. What's interesting about this one is this is a, I'd say, almost a nostalgic inflection point for Hollywood. Nostalgic because relationships are what and timing are what make this town work. And Village Roadshow and Warner Bros. had a very long relationship and a very good relationship, I would add. Inflection point because the industry has changed. The pandemic, I believe, sped up that change, but it was going to happen. It is when you have when most of us have TVs that are half the size of a wall in our house that are, are have more technology than the initial space shuttle did when have more access when there are these when there are the streaming platforms have grown and just think how many platforms were actually introduced over the pandemic itself peacock hbo max quibi but you know clearly that died as fast death but you know man, but others they they were introduced during this period when we were at home watching things and we watched a lot of things we watched a lot then you take in the fact is changing demographics so you have for instance people who have kids I know, for instance, I used to have, I have some friends who used to who live right near a movie theater in West LA. Used to go to the movies every two weeks. Then they had a kid, wonderful little girl, and they maybe went once a month if a grandparent could help take look one. Then they had another kid. They never go to the movies now, and they literally are yeah. at spitting distance of a movie theater, pandemic or not. So, in some ways, Disney, when they were the ones who kind of broke the barrier and said we're going to do these same day releases very tentatively off the start. Um, they were just acknowledging economic reality because kind of like when Steve Jobs went to the music companies back in the day and said, Napster's killing you guys and someone bigger and better is going to come along. Work with me and we'll sell individual songs for $149 online and people will start buying so much you won't even notice the album sales drops over time. Revolutions happen. So I think in that sense, you're also seeing Village Roadshow is playing out like, like Scarlett Johansson did. It's a changing time and a changing expectation. And if just to illustrate that point for listeners, because I'm, I'm sure people will, yeah, but how does that work? Once upon a time, just ask Jerry Seinfeld, there was a great thing called syndication if you made a TV show. It was amazing. They took your hit show, they bought a bunch of it to play it on other channels or to play reruns, and they gave you a boatload of money. Syndication is dead now. It doesn't exist. It's Betamax, baby. And so, like streaming services now, they take your show. Sonny and I have a show. We sell it to Netflix. They're just going to give us a bunch of money. And that's like, well, that's your show. Like, there's no more money coming after that. There might be another season or stuff like that, but that's what we're paying you. It's done. If you've got some big stars, you might up, up the prices, but we're already seeing uh, the kind of money talent is getting going down already. So, these are shifting sands. And these lawsuits, reflect people who I think in some ways are trying to make a gasp for the last big payout. And, you know, again, it's a business. Yeah. Check your Netflix uh, listings 2024, the Sonny and Dominic show coming your way. Uh, it's going to be very exciting. Um, uh, so, again, I find this all super fascinating. Um, there's there's another story you wanted to talk about, and I, it's, a, it's a little sadder. The, uh, the Alec Baldwin rust shooting, uh, the family of the cinematographer has filed a lawsuit against uh alec baldwin as producer of rust and uh and as the uh, you know the the man who pulled the trigger uh when when she died um or maybe didn't i mean yeah, that's the, exactly. the, the question here that's that's the that's the big issue here in this in this fight but let's let's talk about that the, what what is the uh what's the standing of that to how has alec baldwin responded what what's going on there 
I mean, this is a terrible, terrible tragedy that, honest to God, should never have happened. You know, I know quite a few people who work as designers, who work on sets, et cetera, et cetera. Gun safety in an industry that has used a plethora of guns almost from its very inception is a incredibly, incredibly spotlighted element of making a movie. I mean, I would simply say, do the ratios. The amount of movies that use guns and the amount of times these terrible tragedies occur the disparity is obvious. But when they do occur, almost none of that matters. What matters is somebody's dead on a movie and they shouldn't have been. And in this case, what happened to Elena Hutchinson, the cinematographer of the low budget Western indie Rust, where she was shot during what was not really even kind of a rehearsal, but it was more like they were setting up for rehearsal. And Alec Baldwin, who plays the gunslinger star and is also the producer of the movie, was practicing what what had been described as the police by the police as a quick draw move of a weapon that had been handed to him by the first AD, who'd been told him told him it was a cold gun, and it wasn't. And you know, Miss Hutchinson was killed, and the director Joe Souza was injured. Uh, he went to the hospital in Santa Fe. They flew Helena Hutchinson to Albuquerque because the facilities there were uh, greater and they unfortunately, sadly, were not enough to save her life. So there was that on October 21st. And since then, there has been the inevitable march towards what happened this week, which was the family, Helena Hutchinson, filed a wrongful death suit against Alec Baldwin, a slew of producers and production entities from Rust, as well as some key uh, crew members like the first assistant director, David Halls, like the armorer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, and a number of others, and essentially are saying this was recklessness and cost-cutting, and it shouldn't have happened in any way. Add to that, a little caveat, it's important. The day this incident happened, which I think it happened in the early afternoon, New Mexico time. That morning, the entire camera crew resigned from the movie. They cited safety issues. There have been at least two incidents of um, what well, referred to as accidental discharges of weapons, but you know, accidents shouldn't happen. And they also referred to financial issues that they uh, were being they weren't being lodged correctly. So people were having to drive like sixty miles to get to sets, exhausted, et cetera, et cetera. Somebody literally just drove out of the set one day, parked his car on the side of the highway, slept in his car, drove back to the set. And they said this just isn't on. And they were trying to work with the production, and it's a low budget production. And that production said, "No, screw you guys." See, according to these guys, so they resigned, and they resigned in writing. So that's also significant, and they resigned en masse. So you actually had a camera crew who'd been kind of, you know, just cobbled together within hours to do this. It's, it's poignant because I think that's going to come up a lot in the wrongful death suit. Certainly Discovery will look at what exactly was that circumstance, because I'm not saying there's a cause and effect, but I'm certainly saying you can't ignore, you can't ignore the an overall arc of where this was going. And of course, this lawsuit is, I think, lawsuit number five now in this case, where there have been several, there have been other crew members. Um, there have been lawsuits within crew members. The armorer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, who many people say is responsible for this or why, I mean, is responsible for gun safety. Uh, and how did this happen? How did a live round get in when it shouldn't? She sued this guy who'd been hired as the armorer mentorer, who'd been providing uh, some of the hardware, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of going back and forth. Her lawyers, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed's uh, lawyers, have been floating what they call the sabotage theory. And again, I come back to this uh, resignation of the camera crew. They don't name names, but they do kind of, you know, it, that journalistic trope of say something outrageous and then say, I don't know, I'm just asking questions, right? But you've already thrown that out. Yeah. Interestingly enough, 
one of the Hutchins Estates lawyers, main lawyers, Brian Perth, I believe his name is, he made a distinct point yesterday of saying he, the evidence that they had put together for, before they filed the wrongful death suit in uh, New Mexico courts yesterday was there was no no evidence of sabotage. So this either somebody did something and put a live round in the gun, and it probably, it, you know, they're implying very strongly it, negligence, cost-cutting, incompetence, and not good. Alec Baldwin and the producers have responded with a better response than they've had previously, so to speak, which is, and they're actually trying to get one lawsuit dismissed. I think it's the script supervisor who was in the room when it happened, her lawsuit, her emotional distress and more lawsuit. They said prayers and condolences, as one should, obviously. And then they said, but we don't believe Alex ever acted recklessly. And so, you know, we're going to fight this. And that's that's where the, that's where it's at. We have yet to see the Santa Fe Sheriff's Office's uh, investigation conclude. And consequently, we've yet to see any arrest charges or what have you come from basically in Santa Fe, in New Mexico, they don't really have district attorneys by county, for instance. They refer to them as the judicial county. And in this case, it's the first judicial county attorney. There have been no charges or anything. But she has said, don't count it out, pal. So, you know, that'll probably be the next shoe to drop. Yeah. I, one thing I, I always try to get folks to understand is the difference between Alec Baldwin, star of this film, and Alec Baldwin, producer of this film, because there he does have a higher, I think, my understanding anyway, he has a higher level of uh, exposure as a producer, as somebody who is, you know, kind of tasked with the actual making of this movie and the hiring of people, right? Yeah. And, 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 it, and what worth pointing out, there are lots of times when you will see a lead actor or actress's name as a producer. And that's something their agent has very intelligently done to negotiate a little bit more cash for them, right? But as the, as the Producers Guild often show, there, there's producing and producing. There's people who show mm-hmm. up and there's people who do work. Um, in this case, Alec Baldwin, he did work. You know, this was a project that was literally he helped put together. Him and Joel Sosa, the director, were put together by their reps to work on. In fact, I think they have some overlapping reps. Were put together to work on something. The idea, you know, if this film had come out, which you know, it's clearly stopped and it ain't starting again. It's like Elizabeth Warren's presidential yeah. campaign. It's on hold. It ain't happening again. Um, it's uh, it. Well, actually, that might be a bad one analogy in that case. Um, <laughs> but it is. Uh, there would have been a credit of story by Alec Baldwin and Joel Sipsa. You know, they, they they came up with the idea of this. I think it's like 1880s gunslinger, you know, betrayal, vengeance, et cetera, et cetera. You know, fill in the cliches. These movies are pretty straightforward. And so in that case, he does. He does have a lot more potential exposure and liability than many others. And point of fact, because he has been so vocal in this almost since the jump, he has put himself in a place where he is even more in the spotlight than before. And let's be honest, it's not like Alec Baldwin's a particularly low profile actor. You know, you don't think, who's yeah. that character actor I see in everything? Alec Baldwin. You know, he's had MSNBC talk shows, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The fact of the matter is he keeps talking to the press. Mm-hmm. The interview with ABC, which you referenced at the, the top of the podcast, where he said, you know, I didn't pull the trigger. And they're like, oh, how? He's like, it just went off. And people, you know, gun experts, some I spoke to, some others I spoke to have been like, that's a really one in a zillion thing. You're going to have to really prove that. There's an, another element to this, and I ramble, 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 but there's another element to this. When the lawyers yesterday had a press conference here in LA and they presented that they had filed this, this lawsuit in New Mexico and they re- released a copy of the complaint to journalists and others, they also showed a video. They had, and you can see it on the deadline site, actually. We have, we have, uh, we've embedded it in our story from yesterday, uh, from earlier this week. 
And I mean, it looks a little bit like a, a video game from the early 90s in terms of its graphic content. And I mean, graphics in terms of like aesthetics, not necessarily mm-hmm. vividness. But there is a lot of evidence. You see the Alec Baldwin kind of video character shoots, the gun goes off and people fall down and die. Clearly being done to illustrate the sequence of events that they believe occurred and who was where and how it happened. A lot of times when rehearsals happen on set, they're filmed. A camera or two is on for blocking, lighting, whatever, et cetera, et cetera. Because this was a, was a rehearsal that hadn't really even started by coming a rehearsal and Baldwin was kind of doing something else at the other end of the church set where they were filming, there seemingly is no footage of this, which the police really looked for. They even looked for, was some guy just standing there with his cell phone and he filmed it like, hey, I want to show my mom Alec Baldwin was, I got to be in the scene with Alec Baldwin, whatever. There seems to be no footage. So this video that they release is very much intended, not just for the courts, but for the court of public opinion. And that court mm-hmm. of public opinion is where I think, as someone who covers this, is where Alec Baldwin and the producers of Rust find themselves really scrambling to get a foothold. Because there is no doubt Alec Baldwin had a gun in his hand that killed a woman on set. There is no doubt it happened. And that is a, a very damning state of affairs to begin with. And then there is the battle over, well, what's going to happen out of this? And where that yeah. goes and how that does happen. I mean, I think ultimately there'll be this will be settled for millions, somewhat through New Mexico workmen's compensation agreements, somewhat through insurance companies, et cetera, et cetera. Whether or not Alec Baldwin's career rebounds, I don't know about that, but I don't think Alec Baldwin will have problems paying his visa bill. Yeah. And then there'll be some tinkering and talk of some more safety measures on set, just like there were after Sarah Jones was killed on the set of Midnight Rider just like after Brandon Lee was killed on the set of The Crow. And then I don't know if anything will change. I mean, I know people like Dwayne Johnson have come out and said, I'm not going to allow real guns to be used in my movie. We're going to use rubber guns. He's the biggest movie star in the world. And maybe that Titanic will move the other boats, but it also might just hit an iceberg. And other people are like, yeah, well, that's cool because you're The Rock and you're in like $270 million movies and you can do that. But we're making this thing for 50 million bucks and we need real guns. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a uh, it, it, it will be as somebody who has spent a little bit of time on movie sets where guns were around. It is it is I remember hearing about the story and I was like, how did that how did that happen? How do you how does a bullet accidentally get in there and then accidentally go off? It just real, real tragedy. Well, also, um, Sonny, too, it's important to remember, like the term live round can mean a lot of things. And that's the term the police and others have been using, whether or not it was a bullet or whether or not like. You know, in the Brandon Lee case, for instance, it, what it was is, is there was a casing from a, something, a projectile that had been in a gun. And when when that was taken out, the tip of it, if I'm remembering this correctly, and I, I really hope no. I am. And if I'm not, please, everyone write in and say I'm an idiot, which I am most of the time anyways. But, you know, uh, that that casing was taken out and it wasn't taken out properly. And so a bit of it broke off. So when the, the, the blank or the dummy was put in, it pushed against it. And that's what occurred. And that's what actually killed Brandon Lee. Right. Right, so, right. you know, whether or not it's a bullet like what, you know, the LAPD or the NYPD or the Dallas police have in their guns and their holsters, or whether or not it's projectiles. You know, blanks can be very deadly at a certain range. Yeah. And blanks can also, um, if combined with other elements, can become something very deadly. I mean, you know, we know instances over the years of people using rubber bullets. And it turns out rubber bullets can kill too. Like, you know, so it's very, that's still yet to be determined, if, whether or not it was a bullet. The term live round is still what we're trying to figure out. And, you know, that then opens up the window. There's there's malice, there's human incompetence, which, honest to God, I believe, in fact, is an overwhelming factor in so many of the great tragedies of life. Um, and 
it's that is something that forensics discover, trial discovery, et cetera, et cetera, will determine more. Yeah. Let's change uh, topics one more time here real quick. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, the Super Bowl and the Oscars, two live big events, you know, in theory, the last bulwark against the uh, the you know, final collapse of network TV. The Super Bowl did huge numbers. I think the total, the final total uh, I saw in the story you updated yesterday, 112 million yeah, across totally. all streaming yeah. platforms. And the Academy is trying desperately to figure out how to get uh, one tenth of that many people to to watch the Oscars. They announced three hosts. We're going to have a, you know, fan favorites. Uh, that people vote on on Twitter, you know, what, what, uh, what is going on here? So what, what's your take on the Super Bowl and, and the success there? Cause I mean, I think frankly, that's a pretty straightforward success. Uh, and what, what's going on uh, with the Oscars and what the Academy, uh, how, how successful you think the, the Academy is going to be with their efforts to, to bring audiences back? Well, I'm going to answer the second question first, which is <laughs> probably not so great. You know, I think the Academy is bending over. They got Will Packer producing and Will's a very smart man. Like, don't take that away. Um, they're 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 bending every way they can to find a way to 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 solve this and to to get the audiences back. You know, I think it was Liza Minnelli or someone who said recently, like the Oscars just aren't as special as they used to be, or getting an Oscar isn't as special. I mean, I guess that's easy for her to say, but you know, um, you know, that that the trio of hosts, Wanda and Amy and Regina, I mean great people. I just feel like it's really hard to get people to want to watch when most of them haven't seen a lot of the movies, you know, mm -hmm. and that's, there's a separation that has occurred. I don't want to throw back and say, oh, back in the old days, it was great because you know what? It never was great back in the old days. Just ask anybody who wasn't white, male, and rich. Never was great. But there were movies that were very popular that were also acclaimed. Um, again, regardless of what you think about it. Titanic is obviously one of them. And, you know, Jerry Maguire, things like that. You know, these are things. Um, that doesn't seem to happen anymore. There's a few kind of, I mean, look, Dune did great. Dune's fine, Dune great. But, you know, Dune very specific. There's my, put it this way, my 103-year-old grandmother might have heard of the book. She ain't going to ever go see the movie. Mm -hmm. And she ain't going to watch on streaming either. You know, Spider-Man, No Way Home, no luck there. And that was, you know, that's the movie that basically saved cinemas, at least put them on, took them off the critical list and got them at least back some oxygen. So I think that there, I, I think that there's an extreme, extreme uphill battle. And I think if you're going to do this, you got to redo the whole thing. You can't tinker around the edges. You can't play with what you think might be a gimmick. And I don't think three hosts are a gimmick, but I think there are lots of gimmicks. You know, you don't try to do fan favorites. Like, okay, look, if you're the MTV Music Awards, be the MTV Music Awards. If you're the Oscars, be the Oscars. You know what the fan favorites are? What the Academy members voted on. Like, because what you're mm -hmm. doing is you're creating a two-tier system, right? Like, so it's like, what's the popular vote? What's the electoral college vote? Which one really counts? Guess what I'm going to tell you? The people don't, you know? So yeah. <laughs> in that sense, you 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 then you, you build potential resentment factors. And who wants to do that, you know? So- more than anything, though, I think the Academy, which is more diverse and more inclusive than it's probably ever, ever been, but it still needs to speed it up a little bit and get a little bit more rocking with what people are actually watching. And what people are watching, they're watching all over the place. Now, again, I, I wrote a story how Spider-Man was snubbed. A lot of people read it and agreed it was snubbed. I'm not saying it, it was the greatest movie of all time. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying the very problem that, uh, that led to the best picture category being opened up to 10, which is now mandatorily going to be 10, and it is this year, was the fact that back in 2008, The Dark Knight, Christopher Nolan's epic, masterful, wonderful, incredible, best superhero movie ever made, 
let me add more adjectives in the metaverse, was completely snubbed, with the exception, of course, of Heath Ledger receiving Heath Ledger. a posthumous Oscar. Rightly deserved. And then, you know, the Academy was like, this is a problem because Christopher Nolan's a very accomplished, you know, this isn't some blow him up sci-fi, blow him up superhero, no story. Like, this was a political sociological thriller. I mean, I still think Dark Knight is probably the best movie of the Bush-Cheney era in many senses mm. for the creeping paranoia, if nothing else. And so I, I think they're trying to fix that. I don't know if they can because they keep trying to fix something. And I guess at one point you can either try to build back better or you can just remake the remake the machine. And I think that at some point that's going to have to happen because the industry has changed and you need to find out how to change with that. And maybe that's going to be the next step. Maybe you won't see the Oscars on network anymore at one point. I can't see ABC giving that up. But, you know, if the numbers keep falling, they've, they've got to sort of hit, you know, at guaranteed ad rates, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, you know, you got to go through the, the bottom line and figure out if it makes sense. Don't know. Hope it works. Great people. Wanda Sykes, Amy Schumer, Regina Hall. Like, I mean, do I want them to knock it out of the park? Of course I do. I don't think it's about that. I think it's the whole it's the whole machine. Mm -hmm. Super Bowl, I mean, dude, come on. Like, that was literally, you've got the L.A. Rams, the Cincinnati Bengals. You're playing in L.A. at this stadium that looks like it's something from a James Cameron movie. You've got Dr. Dre, Eminem, Mary J., and Snoop Dogg and Kendrick Lamar. And, oh, 50 Cent's showing up, too. It's a beautiful, sunny, wonderful day. Yeah. I mean, oh, and NBC's been plugging the crap out of it, and they've got the Olympics too, so they've just got everyone in sports mode, regardless of what you think about the Beijing Olympics, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I actually felt 112 million were kind of low. I was, I, was hmm. I thought it might it might hit 117. But again, I also think too, it was just a little bit over a hundred on NBC Linear, and then all the streaming and digital uh, sites made up the rest. That's tremendous. Like, you know, Peacock, which didn't really exist before, like them having this and NBCU using that as a platform too, the numbers they were getting there, I mean, you used to look at streaming numbers and be like, oh, I got 300,000. Woo, big success. Wow. Yeah. It's like, it's like I remember back in like the late, early 2000s, I remember I was working at a publication and I wrote a story and I think three people sent me an email about the story, one critical and two praising me. And my editors went crazy. They're like, oh, my God, you got three emails? That's amazing. You know, the numbers now, streaming numbers are real and they're growing. And, you know, whether or not you're going to see Disney make a bid for the Sunday, the Sunday ticket, whether or not Amazon might try to grab more of the NFL, et cetera, et cetera. That's what to look at. So the Super Bowl numbers, I, I was sort of like, well, this is going to be good. It's going to be good. Mm -hmm. It becomes then a matter of how good it's going to be. And, they, you know, it's like a Taylor Swift record. It's going to sell. It's just how much is it going to sell? And it sold great. Yeah. Uh, I always like to close these shows by asking what I should have asked. Is there Was there anything I, uh, I I failed to? Is there anything you want to talk about that you've been writing about uh, that you, want, you think folks should know about? Uh, what What's going on in the world? Well, I mean, I think, look, what's going on in the world is, you know, we may or may not see the Cold War showdown that everyone's thought is going to happen happen. And it's kind of playing out like a terrible action movie with uh, Vladimir Putin in the Ukraine and Joe Biden, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I think a lot of what we're, we're going to see is, you know, we're moving into season finales, season, earnings season here in Hollywood. And I think you're seeing a lot of what the bottom line is about. Uh, some doing better than others. Viacom, kind of a bad stock day. Disney, kind of had a good day last week. And I think that's really where to keep your eye on this stuff. But I mean, I think the thing is, if anything I would say about this, and maybe you agree or maybe you don't, is 
Hollywood is in a, a vast amount of flux, like America, like the culture, to be honest. And I think they're very much in sync like that, which is there's so much change happening. And so as as we as the political dialogue becomes really about people fo- posting on Facebook and arranging things on texts and et cetera, et cetera, uh, on, and Twitter and, you know, I, streaming and the way that we, we look at shows and watch shows and the way shows are produced and what they're produced for, these things are, are becoming... Uh, a whole new ball game, and and I I find it fascinating, you know, sitting from from my 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 cheap seats here to watch it because it is, I mean, this is what you get into this for, man. You get into it for the action, and there's a lot of action out here right now. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you very much, Dominic, for being on the show. I'll have a link to his uh, to his his bio page at uh, Deadline. Go check out our stories. Everything we talked about uh, here should be over there, and and uh, you will learn a lot. I promise you that. My name is Sunday Bunch, culture editor at The Bulwark. Uh, very glad that you listened to us, and we will be back next week with another episode. See you guys then. Thank you.